Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Rupa Subramanya Show. I am Rupa Subramanya. My guest today is Joanna Williams. She's founder and director of the British think tank CHEO, which in Latin means to ignite, to spark, and to set in motion. Joanna is a weekly columnist for the online magazine Spiked and writes regularly for numerous other publications, including uh, The Times, The Spectator, and The Telegraph. She's also author of the book, How Woke One, The Elitist Movement That Threatens Democracy, Tolerance, and Reason. Joanna was in the news here in Canada recently as she was due to speak at a public lecture organized by Canada's Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship on issues of gender identity and censorship. She was due to speak at the taxpayer-funded London Public Library in Ontario, but the library canceled her event thus exemplifying the concerns she raises in her book. The event is now scheduled for another venue. To talk about toxic woke politics, why her lecture in London, Ontario was cancelled, and her recent book, please welcome Joanna to the show. Welcome to the show, uh, Joanna. It's a, uh, great It's uh, great to have you here with me. Um, and uh, uh, I want to start by asking you uh, to explain the circumstances behind uh, why your talk at uh, London Public Library was cancelled, uh, what was your talk about, and uh, if you could just walk us through what, what happened. Um, so it's the uh, Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship here in Canada uh, that's giving their, uh, hosting their annual lecture, and they very kindly asked me to come along and be the keynote speaker for this year's event. And um, I was thinking about academic freedom and what you can and can't say nowadays, particularly on a university campus, but I think in society more broadly. And it seems to me that the number one topic that is off limits for, for free speech um, is to do with sex and gender. Um, certain things that have become real taboos that you just can't say nowadays. So to say a woman is an adult human female, for example, to say that there's no such thing as a transgender child. I mean, it seems to me that this has become a kind of modern day blasphemy. You know, these are things that you just must not be allowed to say. So it seems like a good idea to, if you're talking about free speech, if you're talking about academic freedom, to actually let's have a discussion about where the limits are nowadays. So that's why I proposed the title of my talk should be Sex, Gender and the Limits of Free Speech. Um, traditionally, this talk is held at the public library because it's aimed to get a, a bigger audience than just university students and professors. And I, to me, this seems like such an, an important idea, uh, fundamental to democracy, that, that you've got a taxpayer funded library, universities, which are also heavily subsidized. And you want to, you should, I think, want to bring debates out to the public to involve more layers of people in a debate. Um, but London University, li uh, London Public Library, sorry, clearly didn't see it that way. And they wanted background information about me. They wanted did a transcript of what I was going to say and, and having run various background checks, having pushed this through their committees, uh, they clearly decided that I wasn't a suitable speaker and the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship couldn't host their annual lecture at the library. Incredible. And um, did they tell you um, um, why you were, your talk was being cancelled, why they were not going to uh, give you that space? Well, they have done, but 
it's annoying because they do these things in very cowardly ways, I think. I think if they were really, truly confident of the moral ground that they were taking, I think they would be very open about the reasons. Whereas these people, they tend to obfuscate behind bureaucracy, behind policies, and they'll point to various policy documents that they think you're breaching, which is really their way of saying, you know, of not saying we've made a political decision that we don't like these views. They'll refer you to policy document A, subsection B, you know, <laughs> bullet point 10. And basically, they're trying to accuse me of, of being dangerous, potentially, uh, a risk of, of physical violence, they say, and, and also sexual harassment, which kind of really takes the biscuit, you know, well, all of them, I find utterly bizarre. Um, I mean, in my day to day life, you know, I'm a middle aged mum of three, you know, I, I'm an ex academic myself I write books and papers the idea that I pose a physical threat to people you know it, it's kind of laughable if um, it wasn't so serious no it is and you know we chatted a bit before we started recording and this is your first time in Canada uh, and so it's unfortunate that this was your uh, experience your your initial experience with the country um, and we'll, we'll get to that a little later because I really want to talk about you know, how Canada um, uh, stacks up against the UK, for example, um, or even Western Europe, for that matter, in terms of cancel culture and wokeism. We'll get to that in a bit. But you wrote in your Spiked column, so you're also weekly columnist for, for Spiked Online. I've had the great pleasure of writing for them as well once, and, uh, and you know, uh, publication I grew up reading actually um, and uh, and you you know you've been warning about censorship and and you just got censored uh, and uh, you know how deeply ironic is that and that too at a public library of all places which should be a venue uh, for open debate uh, but clearly that wasn't the case here uh, what what does this uh, what does this event tell us about um, where we are at right now uh, the state of these culture wars yeah, I mean, again, I think this is something that is um, disguised by this hiding behind policies, that this is actually a very political decision. I mean, it really is, as far as I'm concerned, a, a culture wars decision um, that's been made here. And I think anybody who doubts that needs only to look at the fact that this very, very same library, um, the, the London Public Library, they host drag queen story hours you know they're very very happy to run events like that where mm. a, a drag queen comes in and um i would argue essentially preaches gender ideology to children who are far too young to be able to offer a reasoned critique or even know what it is they're being subjected to now i could understand i wouldn't agree but i could understand if a public library said we're funded by taxpayers we think it's important to remain politically neutral. So we're not going to get involved. So they would say no to me. And they would also say no to the drag queens, you know, and, and I wouldn't agree with that. I think in the interest of free speech and facilitating debate, they should have these people there. But I would agree with it. You know, I could understand why you could make such a claim. I think either you say if you're a taxpayer funded public body, you either say political neutrality means no one is speaking or you say everyone is speaking and everyone has equal rights um, to speak. You know, the drag queen can have an hour. I can have an hour. Whereas instead, by saying the drag queens can speak, they can talk about gender ideology. But I can't talk about sex based rights and censorship. They're essentially taking a side 
um, in what is a very um, uh, heated, I, I would say probably the most important debate of our time, the library is very publicly taking one side of that debate. And, and not only are they taking one side, but they're kind of trying to pretend that they're not by just resorting to pointing at policies and documents. So it, it's cowardly and it's biased and it's one-sided and it's very definitely um, the culture wars. But as always, the people who, who I think launched the culture wars, they then sit back and deny that they're doing any such thing. Yeah, I mean, this is a perfect segue actually to talk about your book, uh, which I, you know, I've just uh, started uh, reading it. And, um, you know, and I, I want you, I, I, I would like you to tell us uh, about the impetus behind your book, uh, How Woke One, the Elitist Movement That Threatens Democracy, Tolerance, and Reason. Uh, I'd like uh, everyone listening to get get your uh, get a copy of the book. It it really is, um, you know, quite quite the uh, quite a riveting riveting read so far. Um, what is the main argument you're making in the book, Joanna? Uh, and why do you think this book was necessary? Yeah. So the argument I wanted to make was really just point out how pervasive um, this woke thinking is now amongst an elite section of our society. So I think this is the case really across the globe that the people who are most powerful um, in our cultural institutions, so across the media, across universities, schools, libraries, we now see museums, art galleries, all the cultural institutions in our society, they've been essentially captured by a group of people who all share the same um, political outlook. And it's this very um, elitist, but, but very kind of backward, I think, very regressive ideology that tries to present itself as being uh, just a kind of nice variation on political correctness, um, but is actually anything but, you know, I, I, my big concern about some of these movements is that it's actually rehabilitating sexism, racism, homophobia, you know, all, all of these things that I've been involved in fighting against all my life and now coming back um, under this kind of guise of, of niceness and kindness. Uh, and they're coming back with the people who are running these institutions who are then ruling out all debate and all discussion mm. on what it is that they're actually doing. And I kind of wanted to write a book just to expose what's going on, um, trying to point out to some of the people in charge themselves, look, you, you are in a powerful position because don't they try to deny it? I think they often try to present themselves as victims when they're actually very powerful people uh, and try and point out some of the um, problems with this ideology that has become so dominant in our society. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, as you point out, you know, it's one of the deep ironies is that, uh, um, you know, of the people who are putting out this woke agenda out there, um, uh, you know, are some of the most privileged uh, members of society, uh, whether it's they're in politics, culture, academia or business. Um, and I, I, and I believe in your book, you say that this is a way for them to insulate their privilege while appearing virtuous. Um, can you explain? Can you explain how this works exactly? 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, I mean, just thinking of an example off the top of my head. So walking around in Toronto today, um, you know, I was a bit lost and found myself in the financial district. And the only way I knew it was the financial district is because the lampposts have got little flags which kind of tell you, you know, this is the financial district. Mm -hmm. The reason why I only knew because of that was because the windows of all of the the kind of bank fronts, the financial centers, shop fronts, if you like, are all covered in rainbow flags, <laughs> you know? So clearly everyone's gearing up for Pride Month. And, and these are, you know, forget even culture for the time being, you know, these are the financial, mm. uh, this is the financial district. These are economically incredibly powerful, wealthy institutions employing high paid, wealthy, elite people. And they're absolutely bedecked, not just in rainbow flags, but, you know, it's the um, kind of the pink and the blue and the brown to be the kind of the ultra, ultra inclusive um, pride flag. And you just think, you know, if if this movement was truly radical, if it was something that was truly going to um, upturn the uh, kind of present social status quo, it wouldn't be being adopted by banks and elite institutions and and it wouldn't be so readily and so easily taken on board by all these elite institutions and the fact that that they can take this on board so so easily so and are so desperate almost to to be seen to be having these rainbow flags and and to be bedecking themselves in this um sets alarm bells ringing with me and it says this is not all it's cracked up to be so why why this issue? Why why is much of the Western world, um, and especially here in Canada and uh, and the U.S., uh, you know, wh- wh- what is it about this particular issue about trans, uh, the the trans agenda that um, has gotten every you know every one of these elite institutions on board? Uh, wh- why are so people so passionate about it when there's tons of other things that you could be uh, fighting for. You know, there are so many legitimate issues out there um, that require attention. Um, and, and But why this? I, I, I just, I, I've been trying to grapple with this question and I'm really, I, I, I don't really have an answer to it. No, I, I agree. I mean, I think it, it's a really fundamental question. And I, I wish I could say I had the definitive answer. Um, I'd be lying if I said I do. But I think... For me, you know, it gets to the most fundamental premise um, about what makes us human and on the basis on which we structure our society. So what I mean by that is that being kind of male or female is absolutely the most fundamental characteristic that cuts across social class. It cuts across racial lines. You know, it cuts across every other part of our identity you know it's it's something that parents often learn when you know the mum's still pregnant you know it's it's the first thing that the doctor says when we appear in the world so you know it's 
absolutely the most crucial thing as to what makes us human. And beyond that, it's it forms the basis for how we organize society. You know, a lot of civilized societies have kind of girls' toilets and boys' toilets in schools, you know, changing rooms, prisons, hospitals um, are often um, segregated along sex-based lines. But also it gets to the very heart of, of family life, you know, families are still um, um, probably be criticized for saying this, but it's it's just a, a truth that families are still most often a, a male and a female parent and, and they raise children acting as mum and dad become role models for the children, become sex-based role models. You know, daughters kind of grow up seeing mum and emulating mum. Boys grow up seeing dad. It doesn't mean obviously they become carbon copies, but this is this is the most fundamental part, I think, of what makes us human, of, of how we organise society, or how we organise family life. So I think if you've got some kind of political project which wants to completely upturn everything we take for granted about humanity about society you know you really want to kind of have a blank piece of paper and start from scratch then actually going for for what we mean by human sex is is not a bad place to start from their point of view and and you know that i think that's probably one reason why um this has become such a, a central issue and that too really in 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 the west right and even even within the western world it's a few countries, uh, uh, you know, um, and and so I wonder what's happening. Like, you know, y y if you take countries like India or China, um, is this is this issue really resonating there in the same way? I mean, they're not. Uh, are these cultural wars taking place there? Not to my knowledge. Uh, and and but this is all we seem to be talking about here, uh, especially here in Canada. So is, is there something happening here? Uh, that is uniquely different in terms of identity, maybe lack of institutions, maybe, um, um, I, 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 you know, I'm just trying to come up with, you know, some explanation for why it's so big here and not as big um, outside the Western world. I mean, I think people, like say, who want to challenge the family, want to challenge the social structures that we have, mm -hmm. have latched onto this issue. And I think in them doing that, it's become almost a litmus test, it seems to me. So where you stand on this particular issue really says uh, the extent to which you are old fashioned. You could be written off as old fashioned for still saying you believe that a woman is a, a biological human female. Um, you know, it's are you with us or are you against us? And this becomes the ultimate test, it seems to me, for where you stand, um, not just on, on this particular issue, but across a whole range of issues. It becomes a kind of sorting hat, um, you know, for, for which side of this culture war you land mm. upon. And, and you can see it's also becomes a way of, of compelling people to fall in line. So again, something else I noticed just walking around Toronto today in the public, in the, the station and, and many of the public places, they have sculptures or artworks and then they have a little piece of writing about the artist and they always say, you know, the, the person's name and then immediately in brackets afterwards, she, her. And I've not noticed that in England quite so much, but I, I definitely noticed it in, in Toronto. Um, you know, and, and I think again, it, it's it's this test that that you you go along with, you subscribe, and you can use it then to compel. You know, bosses can use it to compel workers. You know, 
you must display your pronouns on a badge, you must put your pronouns in your signature, which sends a message that you know you can't assume someone's gender, they have to fall in line with this. And, and it would be you know, it would be unthinkable for a boss to compel their workers to wear a crucifix, for example, or to have to wear a turban or some other kind of religious symbol. And yet it's seen as quite legitimate for bosses to compel workers to have to wear a pronoun badge or include pronouns on an email signature. Mm. So I think it serves a, a lot of advantages for, for the people who are in charge of society or in charge of these cultural institutions to, to really go for it with this issue. Yeah. Um, you know, we frequent, frequently encounter um, criticisms of uh, woke narratives, particularly around gender from uh, the small c conservative uh, side of the aisle. Um, roughly speaking, people uh, who uphold traditional values uh, when it comes to the definition of what a man or a woman is. Um, but it's also interesting that there's criticism um, from from the left as well, um, at least from two different quarters. Uh, yeah, you have the feminists and you have the Marxists. Uh, some feminists on the on the left are highly critical of the current gender narrative uh, that in, endangers the um, uh, uh, position of women by denying who we are, and then and then the Marxists would argue that debates about gender and sex sexuality take away from discussions of class struggle and allow the woke elite to retain um, all their privileges. Um, what do you think of these criticisms? Uh, um, you know, do you, and. In some sense, you'd think that these are allies uh, in the, um, um, I mean, do you have some s sympathy for these criticisms coming from the left? Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, no, completely I do. And I think it's really, really important that these are heard. Um, I know that Britain has a reputation internationally for being, um, and you know, I'm sure your, your our listeners will have heard of this kind of turf island, um, is the nickname, which kind of makes me laugh. But I'm also very, very proud of that. And I think Britain, probably far more than Canada and America, uh, has seen pushback against a number of these policies in various different areas, which doesn't mean to say for one second that the battle's won or that, you know, this is all over um, or that there aren't still victories being scored by the other side. But but there is. I think a lot of opposition to um, in gen, uh, gender ideology in the UK. And I think the reason for that is because it is not a party political um, issue. Um, most, I would say, of the opposition to gender ideology in the UK does come from the left, uh, particularly comes from, from feminists. Um, on the point you're making about Marxists, you know, um, one point in my youth, you know, I would have called myself a Marxist as well. Um, and one of the central tenets of, that I took from Marxism was a belief in material reality, you know, in contrast to the critical theory I was getting when I was at university at the time, you know, an actual belief in, in the existence of, of material reality was an important um, principle of Marxism. And, and, and you don't get much more real than biology, as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, 
I think these criticisms, I think it's vitally important that they're heard because I think, I think the problem in some other countries is that when the only criticism of gender ideology comes from the right or, or small c conservatives even, even, it becomes far too easy for this to be then written off as a, a right wing uh, kind of cause, a right wing cause celeb. And that I think um, so, uh, silences uh, other critics who don't want to, people who are you know, perhaps a little bit cowardly or, you know, j just a bit nervous about being associated with that label of being right wing. Yeah, no, and 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 you know, I wonder what the um, you know final question for you, Joanna. What is, what is the best strategy for those of us who want to restore common sense and uh, tol tolerance for different points of view? Um, you know, how do we push back against this um, you know incredibly corrosive and damaging narrative, a woke narrative, which marginalizes and cancels anyone who disagrees with them? Um, you know, what is the way forward in this fight? Well, to come kind of full circle from where we started this conversation, you know, I do think free speech is is absolutely the most vital principle because, um, you know, this is the way that the woke cultural elites win is by trying to put a discussion completely beyond debate. And the more we insist that these things are not put beyond debate, that we do have free speech, that we are allowed to talk about these issues, it allows us to shine the, the kind of the spotlight of, 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 of a disinfectant, um, you know, on this issue and actually let people open it up to democratic accountability, let people in, let people have a say. And, and the more you do that, the more you let kind of ordinary people, to use a horrible phrase, have a say on these issues the more the elites come up against a big, big shock, which is that people are not on board with these ideas. Mm. You know, and this is why I, I kind of toyed with the title of my book a lot, you know, How Woke Won, because it's won in the sense that it's been taken on board by a cultural elite, the people running our institutions. But I really don't think it's one in the sense of being taken on board by a majority of the population. And I think the problem is the cultural elite want to keep the majority of the population out of the discussion. They'd like just to rule us out of the picture altogether. So I think the more we insist on free speech, the more we insist on democracy and democratic accountability, then the woke cultural elite will have to take account of the fact that they've not, they failed, where they failed is in convincing the regular people on the street that their views are right. And, and that's the irony, if you like, about the censorship that they're enforcing. They're not convincing anybody by this censorship. Um, they're just putting the topic beyond debate, which doesn't actually win the argument for them in the long run. Um, it just means the debate can't be had out right now. So do you, do you find yourself generally optimistic about, uh, about, about this fight? I mean, are, are, you know, as wokeism peaked as uh, peaked as such, uh, and that the pendulum is going to be shifting uh, back. Um, I, I, I sometimes feel very pessimistic, and I'm not seeing that at all. But uh, but there are days I feel optimistic about it. What is your general sense? Yeah, no, absolutely the same. I change hourly, you know, sometimes I feel very <laughs> optimistic, sometimes I feel very pessimistic. And it's it's very, very hard to say who's what. The only thing I would say, you know, was that if woke people were truly confident in their own arguments, they wouldn't be resorting to censorship. You know, I see censorship as a sign of weakness. Um, like I say, it, it means they perhaps win the battle in the short term, but they don't win the war that way. You know, if they were truly confident, they would say, we have the best arguments. You know, we will have this debate with 
with anybody who wants to come because we are so confident that we can um, beat you hands down. You know, we can have these arguments and we can win because we're so persuasive. We're so convinced we're right. Every time I hear about someone being no platformed or, you know, um, articles being pulled from newspapers or some type of censorship, it actually does make me, you know, it's, it's infuriating, first of all, but then it makes me think, well, you know, you clearly, you are so cowardly, you know, you, you didn't dare let people have that argument out in public um, because you know um, that your own arguments do not stand up to scrutiny. And so I guess in a funny kind of way, that does actually make me a little bit optimistic. Well, yeah, I'm 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 hoping that the that there is some common sense that uh, that is restored in the debate and uh, and uh, and and I hope that happens sooner uh, rather than later. But uh, Joanna, thank you so much for uh, joining me, for coming on the show, and for uh, sharing your uh, thoughts with us. And uh, uh, again, I apologize that on behalf of uh, um, those people who canceled you, uh, this is not the Canada that, um, uh, you know, I, I fell in love with when I came here uh, many years ago. And um, it's certainly changed since I've been here. And uh, it's unfortunate what happened to you. But I hope that uh, uh, you've also received a lot of support um, in the wake of this, uh, uh, of, of you being canceled by London Public Library. And I wish you all the best. And, uh, and, uh, and you know good luck with your talk on friday thank you very much indeed it's been a real pleasure speaking with you thank you